Hello and welcome to the Harvard EdCast, a series of conversations with thought leaders in the field of education from across the country and around the world. I'm your host, Matt Weber, and today our guest is co-founder and partner of Bellwether Education, a nonprofit organization working to improve educational outcomes for low-income students. He's a contributor to Time Magazine and the blog eduwonk.com, as well as author of hundreds of articles on education reform. Welcome to the EdCast, the prolific and influential Andy Rotherham. Well, thank you for having me. Andy, your organization is called Bellwether Education Partners. The word bellwether meaning a leader of a movement or activity, also a leading indicator of future trends. With the education movement in full swing, who would you say is at the forefront of thought leadership and what are these trends? That's a great question and I appreciate it. It's a flattering introduction because bellwether also means the bell that sheeps wear, uh, <laughs> that uh, the sheep wear in, uh, in Scotland. That was my uh, next question. Okay, there we go. Um, <laughs> So, so I think you've got a couple of different sort of strands of, of, of thought and, and different sort of people and so forth putting it out there. One is, is obviously sort of a pretty powerful narrative for reform. And over the last decade, I think people become more and more aware, and particularly in the media, about just the scale of our educational challenges. You know, one of the byproducts of No Child Left Behind was this unprecedented amount of data. And the conversation has really changed uh, over, the, over the last decade. And so one school of thought is sort of driving on that, talking about what's going on with that uh, and, and, and pushing on that. And then I think a second sort of strand is you have a counter narrative, uh, which are folks who feel displaced by reform, disagree with reform uh, for different reasons, sort of are, are opposed to sort of the general thrust of reform. And they're then pushing back uh, through various venues. And it's, a, it's, it's an interesting debate to some extent that counter narrative is empirical and to some extent uh, it's ideological. And I think, you know, the, the unfortunately it, it often gets very shrill and I think it's very confusing for someone who's a casual observer of this often to make heads or tails of, of the different uh, of the different claims. At Bellwether, we do sort of under what we call thought leadership, we do a couple of different things. I mean, some of it we publish papers and we put out pieces. We also do a lot of work with sort of various institutions in the field, and that's public sector, private sector, nonprofit sector, uh, sort of helping them understand these trends, what's going on, what it's likely to mean for the work that they do, and how they can sort of take advantage of the, of the opportunity where we are to sort of do what they're trying to do better. And we generally work with organizations individuals, institutions that are focused on improving outcomes for low-income kids, because we think, you know, there, there's sort of many different areas of challenge and so forth, but we think that's the, the most acute and most uh, immediate uh, uh, priority. Andy, in terms of the thought leadership, is there a particular person or an organization that's leading this sort of national movement? Yeah, no, I think there's lots of different voices. So if you ask me sort of on this whole conversation around sort of human capital and teacher effectiveness, I'd say like an organization like the New Teacher Project is a, is a terrific example. For years, the Ed Trust has sort of pushed on equity. The American Federation of Teachers, the AFT, is sort of pushing on sort of trying to redefine how unions and, and teachers' unions are perceived in the public space. So, you know, it, what's happening right now, just because of all the attention on education, is all these different strands are sort of happening simultaneously, where in the past, often you've seen sort of one thing, whether it was standards or small schools, was sort of now you're sort of having a conversation now across multiple fronts. And I think on those different things, there's different people who, and organizations that are, that are identified as leaders. Andy, right now, what's troubling you most about American education? You got to pick one thing. Well, I think I think the number one thing would just be, and this is sort of what animates our work, is just the enormous sort of inequities that we allow to persist year after year. So, in terms of sort of many things, that sort of trouble me about the debate and about various policies that are are or not being tried and so forth. But just when you when you look at the data that you know eight percent of low income kids can expect to get a bachelor's degree by the time they're twenty four, and you know as compared with about eighty percent of, of higher 
uh, SES kids, the dropout rates for minority students, sort of the inequities in participation in gifted education, the overrepresentation of minorities in special education, uh, just the catastrophic, again, the outcomes for, for low-income kids. I mean, that, to me, that, that and, we, and we spend a lot of time, people spend a lot of time talking about China uh, and other countries that we sort of see as global competitors, and those are sort of real issues, but more immediately there's a crisis right here at home. It's not just in our cities, it's in our rural communities, and it's sort of, it plays out every day. And despite all the attention to education, all the rhetoric, I think arguably those inequities still get insufficient attention in terms of public policymaking and, and really sort of the, the attention of, of the nation's influentials. On the sort of public policy angle, you were special assistant to the president for domestic policy under the Clinton administration. What were some of the successes working for the federal government in affecting educational change that you experienced? Well, you know, I think the big thing uh, with Clinton was, first of all, he, he sort of changed the conversation. And it's easy now, you know, with No Child Left Behind, and a lot of people seem to sort of act as if educational history sort of began in 2001. You know, arguably in the 1994 law and the push for standards and, and, and President Clinton's push when he was governor for, for national standards along with the first President Bush, like that was arguably a bigger sea change, what happened with the 94 law. The 2001 law put more teeth in it and, 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 and some different requirements and so forth. But the real shift of sort of tying federal money to standards happened in 1994. That was a that was a huge deal. And so the, the you know one of the big lessons is just simply the power not only of policy but of the bully pulpit. And then you know President Clinton did a great deal of work on charter schools and you know a lot of federal money went to startups. And I think even some of his sort of staunchest critics on the right would would acknowledge that you know he played an instrumental role in helping charter schools get off the ground. And but that wasn't sort of some of that was the money. But in the big scheme of things, it wasn't a huge federal investment. But the fact that he talked about it, it made it safe for reformers. It started to change the debate and and. So one of the things I did when we were there is we went to a visit to the nation's first charter school in, uh, in Minnesota, and the president talked about sort of the history, of, and that was the only charter school that was in fact operating when he was first elected president back in 1992. Um, and so I took away from that also just sort of the, the, the power to sort of push things, and I think you're seeing that with President Obama now, sort of is at race to the top, sort of there's, there's structural and there's policy pieces there and money, but it's also just, it's changing, it's just changing the conversation. And then finally, um, sort of the difficulty, and, and you hear a lot about this, but uh, it, it sort of, you know, in the, in the debate, but just the difficulty of using federal policy as a lever to really drive change. And so one of our big challenges, we are trying to deal with persistently low-performing schools that, you know, here more than a decade later will sound familiar because people are still trying to deal with this problem. Uh, and, and trying to figure out sort of how to call attention to it. And the president issued an executive order around, uh, around low-performing schools and, and sort of trying to require better data, data collection, more transparency there, how difficult it is, and then also sort of how difficult it was to try to hold state departments accountable. We were just at those sort of early stages of trying to figure out how to do that, how to even potentially take money away. People were interstates states, were entering into compliance agreements, and just the sort of slow going and sort of long game uh, that, that 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 is from the federal level. And you wrote an article about the Kathy Black resignation. What went wrong there? And a broader question, is there a particular type of person that makes an effective chancellor? Is it tough to be an outsider? Well, I think from that episode, it's clear there's a particular type of person who doesn't make a good one. Um, so I think what went wrong there, and, and you know, I think only sort of Mayor Bloomberg and people really close to him know the answer. Did he? simply misjudge her and he had seen her in different roles and seen something that he thought could transfer or was he simply cavalier about it and you know sort of people's answers to those questions tend to sort of be a proxy for what they think of Mayor Bloomberg his staunchest critics are quick to say 
He was cavalier, staunch defenders, you know, say other things. And, you know, I think we should take the mayor at, at his word. He made a mistake. He owned up to it. Uh, he owned up to it quickly, which often doesn't happen uh, in these situations. And he addressed it by, you know, she is no longer the chancellor. He put in place a new chancellor. And I wrote a column for, for time just saying that basically it, it, it goes to your question. It's sort of embedded in your question. You know, these leadership roles are tough. And Traditional superintendents, non-traditional superintendents succeed and fail in different places for different reasons. Sometimes one who succeeded one place goes someplace else and fails. And I think the real takeaway is just how challenging leadership of these school districts, you know, just how challenging it is. Not only sort of, you know, operationally, which is a huge piece, instructionally, which is a huge piece, and then politically uh, as well. And that we should sort of, I think, have a, a sort of a, a greater regard for the people who, who do it well. We should be trying to figure out ways to train and support them better, put in governance arrangements to support them better so they don't sort of become what a lot of them, frankly, are, which is sort of very highly paid migrant workers. Um, and we should also sort of just have, have respect for just, you know, as with all challenging leadership roles, that good people can go into them and they can struggle and just people should just sort of step back from some of the rhetoric ab about these folks and realize just how difficult this is and, and, and be willing to, I think, recognize that sort of in every one of these instances, there probably are not grand lessons and we should resist the temptation to try to ascribe grand lessons. Andy, along those same lines, you're on the visiting committee here at HCSC. How should graduate schools of education adapt and meet the needs of both children and teachers, schools and policies? That's a enormous question. We could have a two-day podcast on that. I think the big, uh, there's a tension, uh, and I'm also, I'm on the uh, board of directors for the Ed School at UVA, so I see it there at the University of Virginia as well. There's a tension between sort of the traditional role of academia, and, which is to you know, research, to push ideas, uh, and to lead intellectually and the necessity of preparing people for the environment they're going into. And that's a clear tension. And you see uh, at, at ed schools around the country, you often see students sort of not being prepared for the kinds of schools that they're going into and the reality. And so they, 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 they are, they, are uh, they, they experience one sort of environment, one set of theories and so forth while they're in school, and then they go out and they encounter sort of a set of policy arrangements, requirements, and expectations that are totally different. They feel whipsawed. Uh, under, understandably. So I think uh, the big challenge is to balance that tension, to sort of stay true to that intellectual mission and stay true to genuine inquiry and so forth, but also be very cognizant of the, where people who are being trained, whether that's in, in leadership roles, whether that's classroom teachers, uh, whether that's people are going to go out in different roles in, in, in school systems and related organizations, to make sure they're actually prepared for the reality that they're going to face, not, which is not necessarily the world as we might like it to be, but the world as it is. And, and if there's a, if there's a uh, sort of one, sort of, if there's sort of a sweeping thing you can say, I think it's that, it's that too often students really are not leaving prepared. I'm not speaking to Harvard specifically, I'm just speaking to ed schools in general. Students are not leaving prepared uh, for the challenges. I mean, and, and one of the interesting things you see right here at Harvard that we could, should talk about is this new ed leadership degree, which I think is a terrific example of, first of all, an ed school going outside of its doors, which, you know, people talk a lot about collaboration, but it's, um, you know, Mark Warner, uh, the uh, former governor of Virginia, now senator, you know, likes to joke that sort of the hardest thing he had to do in his career was get the ed school at UVA and the business school at UVA to, to talk to each other. And in some ways that joke's funny because it's kind of true. Um, 
Uh, it's, it's an enormous challenge, and they went outside their doors here and worked with the business school, worked with the Kennedy School, and created this joint degree. And I think that both speaks to, A, that degree sort of has really practical components and is preparing people for the real challenges of, of various leadership roles. And I just met with uh, a number of the students in that program this morning, and they're in no mean, you know, by no means sort of a monolith in terms of their, their, their thoughts and their beliefs, but they're being prepared for, for sort of what's out there. Uh, and that speaks to sort of the, the need to, to go outside uh, and be willing to sort of branch out and try new things. And I think, you know, there, there's very few examples of programs like that, and, and, and Harvard should be commended for sort of taking the risk and for the ed school taking the risk and doing something that is not does not naturally come comfortably to uh, institutions like this. It's getting people out of their silos and meeting in common ground. Uh, Andy, you write for Eduwank, the School of Thought column for Time.com, Education Insider. Is it hard to write for different audiences about education? And how, is, how has education writing changed over the years for you, content or style, with the emphasis now on education reform? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's not so hard that there are different audiences. So, for example, Insider is less writing than we're providing data and pretty tight analysis for subscribers who really wanted, you know, they don't, you know, they don't want flowery prose they don't really you know they want sort of to know what's going to happen these are people who are subscribing so they can get really get good insights into what's likely to happen uh eduonk is sort of is, is always it's it's always fun my wife jokes it's cheaper than therapy um and it's a different style of writing it's faster it's a little more sometimes inside baseball and so forth and there's sometimes little you know hints about things that are happening and so forth dropped throughout it so the big challenge for me and, and the thing i really enjoy is writing this column for time the school of thought column because what's it's really driven home to me is just how insidery the education debate can be. And not because people are sort of trying to hoard knowledge or power, but just these are complicated issues. There's often you know, not an enormous number of people working on them and so forth. And so it's sort of naturally people sort of fall into these rhythms. And just what a bad job we have done as a profession, and I just mean education writ large, sort of really just trying to unpack and explain things and make it accessible and, and so forth. And so the, the fun challenge for, for me for writing for time is how do you take these really interesting, complicated issues and sort of show people why they're relevant to the experience that, that their kids may be having in school, to issues that are being debated in their local community, sort of what's the, what's the more general takeaway and how should they think about things? And that's been a fun challenge, and as I said, in terms of my own writing, it's just open my eyes to just you know, sort of how insular we, we can we can just naturally be, and sort of how much we need to because you know everyone is ultimately a stakeholder in public education, and how much we need to sort of try to augur against that. And for the Time articles, what is the process that you go through to actually decide what to write about? Are you informed by Time as to p pick a particular subject, or is it just whatever you want? Well, I'm really lucky at Time. I have great editors, and so they suggest lots of stuff because they hear about things. They know they know what's what what's going on. Um, you know, one of them is a parent herself, so she she hears things, and so they suggest ideas. I see things, and whether it's a new report that I know is coming out or something that's going on. And you know, one thing with the column, the Time deserves a lot of credit for it. It's an you know, I'm not a journalist in the traditional sense. You know, I, I earn my living working uh, with some of these ventures and so forth. And what they decided is to, you know, we have a, a complete commitment to transparency. And so we disclose sort of anywhere where there's, even if it's pretty trivial stuff, like one of my partners has done work for an organization I'm writing about, we disclose stuff like that. Um, as, a, as a matter of course, the flip side is they're getting someone who's pretty close to a lot of this. So I'm sort of spotting trends and patterns, and I'm able to sort of see interesting things uh, you know, that, are, that are happening often before they're, 
before they're public. And so that sort of is, is another way we make these decisions is we sort of use our judgment about things that are interesting that are coming down the pike and that people may not be, be aware of. So it's really week by week from sort of, and then, you know, I try to interview interesting people in the space. You know, one of my favorite columns was just an interview with Jackson Brown, who's, you know, a very accomplished musician, obviously, but also is really interested in education. And, and sort of that column, we couldn't even get all the interesting things he's done on education into the, into the column. We focus on, on one piece. He's a, uh, uh, board member at a school in Los Angeles, but we couldn't even get all the other things he's done, and so those are also sort of interesting and fun, and I think also show, again, that sort of everyone's a stakeholder. Andy, last question. This is more of a question for you to our audience. Is there a particular call to action based on all that you've read about, research, written about, about education, where it's going, that our audience can do on a day-to-day -day basis, whether they be teachers or parents or students or graduate students? No, I don't think there's a particular one except do something. I mean, sort of, again, you know, I'll, I'll go back. If, if, you t if you step back, you just have these numbers that should just floor us, whether it's, you know, an almost 50 percent uh, high school dropout rate for African Americans, whether it's, uh, you know, th these gaps we see on standardized tests by race and income, whether it's that college completion figure, 8 percent for low-income kids by the time they're 24 having a four-year degree. Like every, any one of those, I just rattled them off, but any one of those should be sort of full stop after each one and should just stagger us. And yet we could, we could go on and on. And so I think sort of the big, the big call to action is you don't have to agree with, uh, with, you know, with, with some of the things that are happening before. You may not like charter schools, whatever, but like do something. Like this is just an enormous social problem. And so the one thing that people can't do, whether they're citizens or students, whatever, is sort of stay on the sidelines. Like this is, and it's, it's, it's much more is riding on this than our economic competitiveness. What's really riding on this is what kind of society do we want for our kids and for our grandkids? What kind of social mobility? What kind of social cohesion? Those are the big, those are sort of the underlying issues. You can read more by Andy Rotherham every Thursday on Time.com, the School of Thought column. Thank you so much for appearing on the EdCast. Thank you for having me. This has been the Harvard EdCast, a production of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I'm your host, Matt Weber. Thank you kindly for listening. The Harvard Graduate School of Education, working at the nexus of practice, policy, and research.